Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Studios, it's the Press Box Summer Edition. Come on, football, go, go! Come on, play football! Tyler Bischoff. Wow, you work here? Best seat in the house. Yeah, you do! (laughs) (laughs) I've been laughing for too long. And Adam Candy. Doesn't this seem like cheating? She's rich. She's cheating at life. On ESPN Las Vegas. The Angels are moving to Las Vegas. Ed Graney's out at Raiders practice. We'll catch up with him a little bit later in the show. And that means Adam Candy is in yet again today. I can't wait for Candy's chonies. The first bite. Are the Raiders going to dominate the Patriots? You can vote on our poll at ESPN on Twitter. You nailed that, Jared. Great start to the show. So yesterday on Twitter, the large majority of people that cover the Raiders tweeted about how they couldn't see practice. However, people that cover the Patriots uh, weren't too optimistic about the way the Patriots performed. Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal tweeted, Raiders have completely dominated both sides so far. First three Patriots snaps in team. Stuff, stuff, sack. Mac Jones was five of nine and seven on seven. Only one reception down the field. Also, Carr sliced up the Pats in seven on seven. Adam, does it mean anything that we have only seen good things from the Raiders in preseason? They've won all three games, and in the one joint practice they've had, they are reportedly the dominant side. Game over. Ah, Super Bowl? Sure. Uh, Galactic Bowl. Uh, World <laughs> Series. They've won all of them. Give it, give them all of the prizes right now. No, doesn't matter. Uh, you would worry if they came out there and were awful, but I think you can read plenty more into uh, what we've been hearing day to day about the things that we're concerned about than we can about how they're dominating the Patriots in a joint practice. So the interesting part of this that I want to ask you about that I've seen a lot of people that cover the Patriots write about, and uh, I guess Patriots fans probably not exactly pleased with, Joe Judge and Matt Patricia calling plays for the Patriots? Like, Giants fan, that's going to be a disaster, isn't it? I'm going to try to keep my blood pressure down (laughs) answering this question. Uh, Joe Judge calling plays would be an absolute disaster. Uh, But it looks like actually Matt Patricia, who was the former defensive coordinator of the Patriots, uh, who was the former head coach of the Detroit Lions and was the opposite of everything we get out of Dan Campbell, just as unlikable <laughs> as uh, Dan Campbell is likable. Looks like Matt Patricia and Bill Belichick last preseason game were the one who ones who were huddling up and doing most of the play calling. So either way, it's ridiculous. Um, it's almost the opposite of the average NFL situation right now where you have an offensive-minded head coach like a Josh McDaniels or a Sean McVay where you realize in the end that even though there's an offensive coordinator, that offensive coordinator is there to execute Sean McVay's game plan. Like, this is the complete opposite. This is Bill Belichick just sort of thumbing his nose at everything in the NFL and saying, yeah, sure, I don't need an offensive coordinator. I could take Joe Judge, the special teams disaster, and I can take Matt Patricia and make them offensive coordinator. So I think the interesting part of this is that we haven't seen bad things from the Raiders, but it's still, at least the joint practice reports, I think it's a lot more about the Patriots than it is about the Raiders yesterday. And are the Patriots actually going to be 
a good team this year? Are they going to be a playoff team? Because we've talked about it this offseason, the AFC, it's not just the AFC West, but the entire AFC, it's going to be very competitive. There's 11, maybe 12 teams, depending on what Cleveland thinks, that think they should be in the postseason this year. There are not 11 or 12 spots for the postseason. The Patriots and the Raiders, more likely than not, are competing for a wild card spot in the AFC. It could very easily come down to those two teams. They're going to play each other in the regular season as well. And that game, that might be the single game that decides who goes to the playoffs between these two teams. And so even though I'm, I don't think you want to run away and take a victory lap around Arrowhead Stadium just because the Raiders have been good in the preseason, I do think it's a good thing for the Raiders that one of your potential wildcard opponents looks like a mess so far. I mean, and, and we're talking about Matt Patricia or Joe Judge or a combination or one calling plays like I think it's a good sign for the Raiders, not necessarily that they dominated a joint practice, but that the Patriots might not actually be a legitimate playoff contender at the end of the season. Okay, well, setting those expectations makes it a lot easier for me to have this discussion because I never really thought the Patriots were a serious playoff contender this year in the AFC because of what the rest of the AFC looks like. Uh, I don't even like the Dolphins. I don't like Tua, and yet... (laughs) I think the Dolphins might be in a better position to make the playoffs than the Patriots are this year. And if you're going to talk about seven spots, okay, I mean, we can count them up pretty easily, right? The entire AFC West thinks it should be in the playoffs. You can look at the North and see the Ravens and the Bengals legitimately thinking they should be there. And then, like you said, who knows with the Browns, uh, the Colts believe that they have the pieces in place, as do the Titans. And at that point, you've you've covered all the ground you need to cover before even getting to Buffalo. So, yeah, I think you look at the Patriots right now and say, are the Patriots on the same level as the Raiders? I, I wouldn't think they would be after losing McDaniels and having a second-year quarterback in Mac Jones who declined as the year went on. Like, the Raiders should be ahead of where the Patriots are right now. Yeah, and, that, and like if you start counting off the teams, that's the type of team they need to be ahead of. Also, like the Dolphins, they need to be better than the Dolphins. They need to be better than the Titans, which is, again, not a massively high bar to clear, just like the Patriots, but it is a bar that the Raiders are going to need to clear this season because they're going to have to be better than some good teams this year. It's not going to be, oh, you're going to sneak in as the AFC wildcard team and you're not very good. The records, I'm, I'm interested to see. Like, that's the thing. What do you think the seventh wildcard team or the seventh playoff team, excuse me, in the AFC, what do you think their record is this year? Well, I think there's going to be such carnage in the AFC that it's not going to be that different yeah. than the NFC, right? I think the NFC's number seven seed is probably a nine and eight team just because there aren't going to be many good teams in the NFC. But I think it's 10 and seven on the AFC side because of the fact that by the time the AFC West gets done beating each other up, really, do you see anybody in the AFC West coming out with more than 12 wins? No, I don't. No, I, I, I would be surprised given because it's not just the divisional schedule. I think everybody except like the Broncos have a very difficult out of division schedule, too, and especially the Kansas City Chiefs. So it's if anybody in the AFC West rips off a you know 13 win season, either a the strength of schedule is much uh, different than what we expected outside the division, or that team is just really good or really lucky in like one score games throughout the entire course of the season. Well, it's important to remember when you talk about the Raiders and their schedule and the fact that by sharp football analysis, they're playing the third hardest schedule in the NFL this year. It's important to remember the Raiders were a second place team in the division last year and your schedule for the following year is determined by your divisional finish. And so you get the Raiders in a tough, tough spot. And then you talked about it with the Chiefs when we were going to talk about the greater AFC. 
the Chiefs have not only the hardest schedule in the NFL this year, they have one of the hardest schedules in the NFL over many years. So that's why this division is as wide open as it is. It's not even about how far down are the Chiefs. It's about the fact that the Chiefs are going to have to go through an unbelievable set of challenges to repeat. Man, Rich Passaccia really screwed this year's team by making the playoffs. Rich Passaccia thought he was protecting a job. Okay, hold on. Funny I, for Rich Passaccia. That is true. I have a legitimate question that I don't remember the answer to. If if the Raiders and Chargers had tied last year, they both would have gone to the postseason. Do you know off the top of your head who would have been considered second and who would have been considered third in the AFC, uh, in AFC West? I do not, but I'm almost certain it goes back to the same tie-breaking procedures that are used for playoff positioning, right? Uh, that we go back to going all the way down the line of, you know, record against the AFC, record against the division, et cetera. So if I remember correctly, the Raiders with a tie would have been the seven seed. And like them scoring them scoring in overtime, it was like, oh, they're not doing it for anything, but it did help their seeding. But now if, if they were the seven, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that would have meant the Chargers would have finished higher than them in the division and therefore they now have a worse schedule. So Rich Passaccia kicking that field goal not only screwed the Chargers, but now screwed the 2022 Raiders. Like, what are you doing there, Passaccia? you got to help the team out. Rich Passaccia was the head coach of the Raiders with the belief that he would continue to be the head coach of the Raiders. And if Rich Passaccia was trying to kick a field goal to help win, he thought that, you know, maybe going and beating the eventual (laughs) AFC representative in the Super Bowl might help him keep his job. Not that his owner was going to go and find a coach who failed wildly in his first run as a head coach and can't necessarily be extricated from the success of his last head coach. One other thing on the Raiders that I wanted to get to, uh, to Sean Reed of The Athletic, he wrote a story earlier this week, and he he wrote in there, there's interest from the Raiders. A person with direct knowledge of the situation told The Athletic, but the issue is the price for Indomitian Sue. Sue is seeking a contract with an annual value of $9 million per year. Dominican Sue, 35-year-old interior defensive lineman, right? Getting up there in age. However, he's only missed two games in his entire career. He also has at least six sacks in each of the last two seasons. So it's not like he's been unproductive at his age. We have talked the entire offseason about when are they going to sign an offensive lineman? What are they going to do there? They've got 20-plus million in cap space. So technically, it's not either or. But if you're the Raiders, are you interested in signing in Dominican Sue right now? The Raiders, again, as we talked about yesterday with Isaiah Wynn, they have to be all in on anything they can do this year, especially if we're talking about a one-year deal. And I have come around on this after doing a little bit more research. I initially wasn't wild about the idea of $9 million for Indomitian Sue because do a real surface-level analysis, and you'll see that Indomitian Sue has had his PFF grade overall go down each of the last four years all while playing less snaps each of the last four years. I had heard some arguments to say, well, you use him in a more limited role and he'll still be more effective. Well, overall, he hasn't been. You talked about the sacks. The sacks have been there. The pressures have remained relatively consistent, and that's the number that tends to be you know, the better measure of how good the guy has been. But if you look overall and say, okay, uh, how good has this guy been as a pass rusher in particular, we know what he brings to the table in terms of being a run stopper. But in terms of a pass rusher, he rated 13th in pro football focus grade for pass rushing among 
interior defensive lineman, and that actually puts him up in some pretty impressive company over uh, over the amount of time that we've seen this guy perform. So, you know, ultimately, I do think that it's something where you can look at it and say, I have no problem paying him that because if you match up what he's done in terms of his ability to put pressure on the quarterback to what other interior defensive linemen are being paid this year lines up pretty well like his closest comp is Kenny Clark from the Packers Kenny Clark's making nearly 10 million dollars just this year and then he can point to guys like Leonard Williams who he's only uh, you know maybe a step or two behind Leonard Williams is making 27 million dollars this year so if I'm in Dominican Sue I know what the price is because I can look at other interior defensive linemen and see what they're making do you, do you think he could, you know, also like play offensive line? Um, <laughs> I know Man? what at this point, at this point, why not try it? Uh, it? I know we're going to talk about this more later in the show, guys, but uh, I was reading through Derek Carr's comments from the press conference yesterday. And every time he was asked about an offensive lineman, uh, in particular, Illuminor and Parham, man, oh, man, do you want to talk about some soft, faint not strong praise. Hey, oh my God. They're all doing it the right way, and you know you have to do it the right way. Right. Yeah, they can take hard coaching. There's there's a lot more there. We'll talk about it. All right. Coming up next, <laughs> we'll jump into some baseball because the Angels, they better move to Las Vegas now. Fernando, do you stand by the ringworm story? And if so, what was the timeline? When did you have ringworm and when did you have the test that was positive? Let me clarify on the ringworm story. I've been dealing with skin infection on the last of the course of the years. Um, during that period of time that I got tested, uh, I got this medication that it was not from my medical staff back over here in the, in the Padres. And then soon later, uh, I tested positive and then it was more like it. But at the end of the day, there's no excuses. I need to do a way better job on what is knowing what is going inside my body. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. We got Luke Bryan tickets to give away later in the show. Ed Graney will join us as well live from Raiders practice to see if he can actually see anything. But yesterday, the Angels announced that their owner, Artie Moreno, is exploring selling the team. Moreno also sort of gave like a goodbye message so it seems to be more than just exploring it seems to be a hey this team is for sale please come buy them he bought the angels back in 2003 so he's been the owner for essentially two decades but the angels have not been very good they have five playoff appearances none since 2014 um the overwhelming reaction i saw on the internet yesterday adam was that angels fans are thrilled that Artie moreno is selling the team I'm not an Angels fan. In fact, I'm a Yankees fan who's had to watch the Angels beat up on the Yankees in Anaheim year after year after year. And I am thrilled <laughs> to see Artie Moreno out the door. Anyone who has listened to me on this show or other shows on the network has heard me yell about Artie Moreno for years and how it is a crime what he has done to Mike Trout. And the fact that the Angels are going to have a chance by doing this to retain Shohei Otani... I don't know. To me, it seems like a massive win for the franchise, no matter who buys them. So the Otani factor here, you think that the angel, if Moreno sells the angels, it makes them more likely to keep Otani than if he was still there. 
I don't think it has anything to do with ownership and whether they're willing to spend on Shohei Otani because we've seen Artie Marino be plenty willing to spend on crappier players than Shohei Otani. But what it does is it might actually give Otani reason to want to stay because we've heard him talk over the last couple of seasons about how frustrated he is with the lack of winning in Anaheim. Remember, Shohei Otani chose Anaheim specifically yep. when he could have gone anywhere when he was coming over from Japan when he was going to make absolutely no money to be there. He wanted to be with this franchise. Now he might have the opportunity to stay with a new ownership group that might be giving him more of what he wants around him. So I'm curious to see the timing of this because uh, Major League Baseball franchises don't get sold you know, overnight or within a week and Shohei Otani after this year has one year left before he can enter free agency. Is this going to be a over like is this going to have be sold have a new owner in Anaheim before Otani hits free agency because there's a legitimate chance that Moreno wants to sell wants to sell quickly and it still takes a year and a half until the Angels actually sell or actually are sold and Otani might hit free agency before there's a new owner in place according to Sam Bloom and the athletic it appears that the typical process is an eight to 12 month process so if you start the clock now there shouldn't be any problem having the team sold in time for an Otani decision to be made, the only question would be if the Angels happen to be terrible again next year and have their ninth consecutive season out of the playoffs, then you might look at it and say, do they have to make a trade deadline decision on him before a sale is complete? That's something that's within the realm of possibility when it comes to the Angels. And so this is the interesting part uh, about the Angels. It was going to be interesting regardless of who the owner was, was next season given that it's the last year Otani's under his contract, do they need to trade him? Do they need to basically say, hey, we're not competing now? Signing this guy to what's going to be a massive deal might not make that much sense for us. Should we trade him, get as many assets as we can, and try to be good in two or three years or something like that? Now with the ownership involved, it's curious because with Otani, the Angels have the most marketable star in the game, and I would think most owners would want to inherit Shohei Otani, but it's also baseball, where people often, owners often don't want to pay people, and that's the other part here. Artie Moreno has spent money as the Angels owner. They've been top 10 in payroll every year, but one since he's been the owner. That one year, they were 11th, so they ha- it's not like we're talking about the Pirates or the A's or the Reds or anything like that. This is an organization that has spent money, just not very well. And I'm I'm curious, somebody comes in, buys the Angels. Like, there is a chance somebody buys the Angels and doesn't spend money. There is a chance somebody buys them and says, yeah, we can win baseball games without spending very much money on our roster. Yeah, there's a chance of that, but that's not the way we've seen things go in the modern-day game. We saw Steve Cohen come in with the Mets and spend and spend and spend, and look, the Mets are good. They've actually spent money well, because when you talk about Artie Moreno spending money, the one thing he's never spent money on is pitching. This team has not had pitching in the entire time that Mike Trout has been there, unless it's Shohei Otani, and Shohei Otani is going to be making absolutely nothing for the next two years because Major League Baseball put in an even more restrictive system than it had in the past for international players coming over. So I think it can only get better for the Angels because Artie Moreno has spent just enough for them to be relevant and then for them to not be good enough. And isn't the timing interesting for Artie Moreno, who is facing... Two wrongful death lawsuits in the Tyler Skaggs drug overdose situation 
and who just a couple of months ago thought he was going to be buying Angel Stadium and 150 acres of land around it. And then that deal was off when it came out that the Anaheim mayor had been leaking inside documents from City Hall to the Angels to try to facilitate that sale. Uh, really interesting timing that Artie Moreno wants to let go of his baseball team right now. Convenient. Now, and this is the part that uh, I don't think is going to happen, but we can get excited about it anyways. The uh, possibility that the Angels could move to Las Vegas. Obviously, we've had the A's using us as leverage against Oakland for, uh, what's that feel like, two years now or something. The Angels have an old ballpark in Angel Stadium open in 1966. Um, that's generally one of the biggest driving factors behind a team moving is they want a new stadium and they want somebody to help them pay for it or pay for the whole thing. There is a possibility here that the Angels could do what the A's are doing and try to get a new stadium out of Anaheim. And if not, okay, we're moving somewhere else, moving to Vegas. But I think a lot of it has to do with that stadium and the whole Artie Moreno was going to buy the stadium in the land, but that deal fell through because of the mayor, and now the city of Anaheim still owns it. There's a slight opening that the Angels could at least uh, use us as leverage at some point against Anaheim or even move here. There is a slight chance, but I think you've got it absolutely correct when you talk about a slight chance. Uh, the biggest thing that's going to happen in Anaheim is what are they going to do with that stadium in Orange County? That stadium is now, even though it's been renovated, that stadium is 56 years old. That is, by a long shot, one of the oldest stadiums in all of baseball, with the exception of Fenway and Wrigley. It might be the oldest, if I'm not mistaken. So that's going to matter when it comes to what happens with the Angels. And in Vegas, yeah, you have the possibility of a move, but you also have Major League Baseball explicitly backing that because of the struggles they've had getting something done in Oakland, there hasn't been nearly the same level of frustration from the league toward Anaheim. I would thoroughly enjoy the Angels moving to Vegas and the A's losing their leverage play in Oakland. The timing probably isn't going to work out well enough for that, but that would be absolutely hilarious for me. It would be sort of the opposite of the Raiders <laughs> in L.A. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, coming up next, John Von Tobel joins the show. And in the end, an deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Oh, what a judgy and blast. All rise. Here comes the judge. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now is John Von Tobel. Uh, all right, uh, John, can you explain to us your reaction when you saw that Artie Moreno was trying to sell the Angels yesterday? Um, I mean, I could reenact it for you, but there'd be a lot of, like, you know, screaming and jumping for joy and yelling <laughs> and whatnot. I don't want to do that over the radio. Um, it's very happy emotion, I'll tell you that. You know, it's incredible, too, because, look, Moreno has not done a great job with the team. He bought it, like, when it was at its peak, essentially. And still, by the way, can we just say how these rich guys have this made? I can't remember what he bought it for, but it was, like, dirt cheap in comparison now. I think I read it was worth multiple billions of dollars, the Angels. So he bought the team, kind of ran it into the ground a little bit, and is going to make quite the surplus. So good for him, I guess. Uh, but, no, I'm happy, and especially with the news that it is potentially Joe Lacob, uh, the owner of the Warriors, uh, that could be sniffing around the franchise. Uh, he was asked about it uh, via text. I think I read one report, and he responded, ah, I can't speak on that, and then ended it with a smiley emoji, so we know what that means. So 
I, I think it's uh, it's pretty good news. I think if you're an Angels fan like me, that if a guy like Lakeup's involved, who's been pretty successful, uh, I think it's going to be an exciting time in the next you know five ish years or so. All right, hold on. Two things. One, uh, he bought it for 180 million dollars, and I God. saw that he the potential price is going to be two billion dollars or more. Uh, so from 180 million to two billion, uh, and two, the smiley face from Joe Lakeup. Um, He's in his 50s or 60s, right? Like, I, I think if an old person sends an emoji, you have to question if they knew what the emoji meant when they sent it. Nah, but he's, like, he's a tech guy, right? So, like, I feel like he's kind of, he understands what the implications are of sending a smiley face. You know what I mean? He's not like an old guy who, like, fat-fingered the phone and accidentally sends one or, or like, typed in a word and then auto-fills with an emoji. He knows what he's doing. What has been the biggest problem with the Artie Moreno ownership time what have they not gotten right with trying to build around mike trout and now otani so i think it's it's obviously twofold right one you start with a farm system like i don't think in the last like i think like 10 years adam i don't think they've had a top 15 farm system like it's been absolutely awful and part of the reason is moreno burns through executives like nobody's business and i think he also handcuffs to him to a certain extent i mean look at a guy like jerry depoto right depoto's there for a while as a general manager doesn't have success it's a short leash gets fired He's all. He's now the. I think it's VP of baseball, like executive baseball decisions, whatever it is, uh, over at Seattle. He's done a tremendous job with the Mariners in making them contenders while he's been over there, and done a brilliant job with shaping their roster and whatnot. Like that's the kind of thing that kind of bothers you, right? There's a there's a laundry list of guys, whether it's players or whether it's executives, that come to the Angels, fail in some form or fashion, leave and become successful again or relatively successful. Let's talk about Albert Pujols. You know, that's just bad luck. But all of a sudden, Pujols is red hot. What about Jose Quintana? Quintana came over, was an absolute nightmare for the Angels, and now he is being acquired in the trade deadline as a relatively solid pitcher. You can use like a three or four on a run to a postseason, whatever it is, right? So that's kind of the problem is like his decisions with executives have not been very good. And his odd selective like contracts that he gives out long-term deals, the guys that are in their near 30s who are in that range of you don't pay these guys, you don't give them long-term money, and they flame out. And I do wonder, this isn't necessarily on Moreno, but with the decision-making with the front office and the executives, they have been such a poor team in terms of the health of their players, and that is like it's a trickle-down effect. You don't handle it from the top down very well. And little things like that are absolute nightmares for your franchise. And I, I think that's been a big problem. So, like, it, it's all over the place with Moreno. Did you see this news and think that Shohei Otani is more or less likely to stay with the Angels beyond his uh, current contract, which ends after next season? I think it's less likely, right? I think you kind of just want to get out of here. Like, all right, look, like, they're selling the team. This place is a nightmare. We don't know what the direction is going to be here over the next, you know, however long it takes to get rid of this team or sell it. I think that probably, if I'm thinking about it from my perspective, I think I'm more likely to get out of there because you have no idea what these changes are going to be and what the focus of the team is going to be as you kind of move forward. So I think, look, the Angels aren't near competing unless all of a sudden Moreno in this offseason, before he gets rid of the team, uh, is going to have a change of heart and just open the pocketbooks and spend lots of money to get really good position players and pitchers. That's probably like not going to change. So I don't see why anything would change with Otani's thinking. So I would think that it's either the same or maybe it increases the probability of him leaving. I can't believe we're talking about this this way at this point. But, you know, Mike Trout's back condition has been reported well this year. He's played it down. Uh, some others have said that it's something that you're going to have to watch. And Mike Trout is signed through 2030. Uh, is Mike Trout still a player that they can build something around if Otani leaves? 
I mean, he is, but why would you? Like, like I've kind of added another line, like the thinking that just ship them both off, right? Like, just blow the whole thing up, get as much as you possibly can back for both of them, and start to build this thing up the right way. I mean, how many teams? Tyler's favorite team, right, is a fantastic example of it, the Houston Astros. Like, you suck for a while, get a lot of guys, and then you can build it up the right way. Look at the Orioles. The Orioles have done a tremendous job with this as well in terms of being terrible for – you know what, four or five years, and now all of a sudden having an adequate team to compete with. So I would say blow it up. Like, yes, Trout is still a guy you can build around, but why would you want to waste the time there? By the time you get enough pieces to build around him, how old is he going to be with a deteriorating back issue, you know? Uh, do you trust that Artie Moreno would accurately or would do a good job of blowing it up and getting the pieces for the future? <laughs> uh, absolutely not. <laughs> like, that's the other part. They've really shown that they have a uh, an adequate strategy. And it's like, but it goes back to what we were talking about, right? Like, you don't really trust that they can do it, but at the same time, you've got to give guys like Perry Manassian or whoever it is, you know, the adequate leash to do what they want to do. Like Jerry Depoto didn't really get to do it. Manassian, for all intents and purposes, now maybe he's got a vision. Who knows? They spent every single draft pick last year on every single one was on a pitcher, and they're kind of weird in terms of their executive signings. But you don't know how much Moreno really affects that, you know. So, John, let's switch gears a little bit here. I'm trying to imagine if you were in a situation where. You had told the owner of a company, I will only continue to work for this company if you get rid of my two bosses. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, everyone puts out a joint statement saying, you know what? It's good. We're great. Everything's going to be fine. So when Kevin Durant returns to Brooklyn after having called for the firing of Steve Nash and Sean Marks, what is this going to look like? I mean... I think if I'm Steve Nash and Sean Marks, you're in a place of confidence, aren't you? Like, at every turn, Kevin Durant has been like, I want this. And for the most part, they've given it to him, except when it came to, you know, the demand of the trade, the demanding of changing the staff, both executively and, of course, a head coach. If you're Nash and if you're Marks, I think you're operating from a actually very powerful position. You're feeling very confident in your position. The Nets essentially told Kevin Durant, look, man, like, there's not the packages out there. We're not shipping you off for pennies on the dollar. So you either suck it up and come play, or you can do that whole thing where it was rumored that you're going to retire. And we both know you're not going to do that. So I think the onus now is on Kevin Durant to kind of, like, you know, strap it up and play under Steve Nash, the guy who he, by the way, wanted, right? Remember, they fired Kenny Atkinson so they could go and get Steve Nash because Nash was the guy that he wanted. So I think this is it's a weird situation, but now it's on Kevin Durant to kind of suck it up and get this thing done because even – I don't know if you guys saw like a report like a week or so ago that Kyrie Irving has already been putting the noise out there that he's intent and ready to play in Brooklyn. So like we've already kind of seen Kyrie early on fly into the thought of, all right, nobody's going to trade for me. Let me kind of wrap my mind around playing for the Brooklyn Nets. And the most vocal player in all of this has been Kevin Durant in terms of like voicing his disapproval of the franchise. So it's Durant, I think, who's got to adjust the most as opposed to anything else. And that's what I'm fascinated to see. I think it's going to work out for the most part. Uh, if everybody's going to be healthy and available. But I think if you're Nash, if you're Marks, you're coming into that building feeling pretty good about yourselves because they stuck their, they stuck to their guns, the front office did, the executives did, and you're still there and you still have Kevin Durant. What does uh, work out to you mean? Like, are they a title contender? Are they in the Eastern Conference Finals? Does that just mean, hey, they're a playoff team? Oh, no. Like, if you're telling me, like, if you're going to guarantee me, Tyler, that like Kevin Durant's going to try, like, the entire season, you know, health <laughs> issues aside, whatever it is, if Kevin Durant's buying in and Kyrie's buying in and they're giving it their all to win every game, not every game, but, you know, compete for a title, then, yeah, like, they're a top-four team in the Eastern Conference. I think you can quibble about, like, you know, how you rate Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, and them and where you put them in the pecking order, but they're in that mix for being the best team in the Eastern Conference. I mean, not only do you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, 
Ben Simmons, once he, I think, gets his body back and, you know, his legs back underneath because he's played for over a year, um, he's an all-world defender. He's going to be incredible. You have Seth Curry. You have Joe Harris, who, yes, he's got a big contract and they wanted to get rid of him. He's still a well over, he's about a 40, what, 44% career shooter, somewhere in that range, 42%. He's a really good weapon to have there. Like, there's some intriguing depth here. So, yeah, this is a really good team. And if you're going to tell me that Kyrie and KD are buying in, that's top four team in the East with a very legitimate shot at winning an NBA Finals. All right, John, let me throw this at you before we let you go. Uh, would you ever drink a beer through a hot dog? I would to try it. Like, I'm never – so i got to say this. So I'm not really big on, like, beer and food. Like, to me, it's just, like, really bloating. It's surprising for a big guy, but I just don't like, like, the bloating feeling of getting full and drinking beer with it. But I understand the mix. And I, I, would, I would give it a shot because at the end of the day – like, it's all going to the same spot. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I, I'd give it a shot. You're supposed to appease your taste buds before it all goes to the same spot. I mean, kind of, I guess. It depends on how you go. I mean, like, are you are you a Gramala type? Do you not let your foods touch on the plate? Uh, no, mix it no. up. I mean, yeah, okay. There's a, there's a difference between Mike Gramala and hot dog straw. There's somewhere in the middle that's okay in normal life. Don't you don't you cook your brats and beer? I'm I'm not a big like brat guy, but isn't that like a thing? Yes, and listen. For some reason, Adam Candy's mom made that point yesterday. The difference here is you're consuming the liquid through the hot dog, not the hot dog after being in the beer. Well, there's no difference. I think it tastes <laughs> the same. I think it'd be fantastic. I think right. it's awesome. I'm get, totally in. Get out of here. Don't defend this guy. He's John Von Tobel. Follow him on Twitter at MeJVT. Thanks, John. See you guys. Thank you. All right. So there is uh, our resident Angels fan expressing his joy over Artie Moreno, uh, likely selling the Angels. Coming up next, the best segment we do around here, we yell at Adam Candy about referees. might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. So I saw something that I don't believe I've ever seen before. Last night, and we have our resident referee, Adam Candy, on the show today. So a perfect time to ask him this question. First, I got to set this up. Last night in the Astros and Twins game, Jose Altuve was hit by a pitch. As he walked down the first, he was yelling at the pitcher. Pitcher yelled back at him. The bench is cleared. Nothing actually happened. There wasn't a fight or anything, but the bench is cleared. Everybody was on the field. The next batter was a four-pitch walk, and the Twins sent their pitching coach out to talk to Aaron Sanchez, the pitcher. But as he's out on the mound, the umps tell the twins that that was their second mound visit of the inning, meaning the pitcher had to be taken out of the game because the umps decided that during the benches clearing after the hit by pitch, the twins used a mound visit. Uh, the twins were very confused by this. Rocco Baldelli, their manager, uh, ended up getting ejected while arguing with the umpires over this. Now, on the replay that was showed, Rocco Baldelli did spend like 10 seconds or so on the mound talking to his pitcher after everybody had started to leave the field after the hit by pitch. And the home plate umpire did signal to the official scorer that it was considered a mound visit. However, it didn't appear as though he actually told either team that that counted as a mound visit or made it clear that either team knew 
that that was a mound visit. So, Adam Candy, what constitutes a mound visit, especially after a unique scenario where there is a benches clearing um, argument between the teams? I like how you think the best part of this segment would be me going into the Major League rulebook for a <laughs> definition of mound visit. Man, talk about something that will have people pulling their cars over and saying I have to listen to this entire segment. I'm going to go for something slightly different here. When you get in the middle of that kind of situation where there's a potential fight, where something where your emotions have potentially gone up at the same time that everyone else's emotions have gone up, which is not the best way to handle it. You're kind of hoping your emotions stay down, but it's only natural. Sometimes you forget a step somewhere in there, and it seems like the step they forgot was notifying Rocco Baldelli of the fact that they had charged him with a mound visit. Now, beyond that, in the middle of all of that madness, you might not want to let Rocco Baldelli know that he's been charged a mound visit because that could be something that's going to inflame the whole situation again when you tell him, hey, by the way, even though you were out here defending your players, I'm charging you with a mound visit because you went and talked to your pitcher. In the long run, what would be the better officiating decision? What would be the better umpiring decision? Don't charge him a mound visit for that. When everyone's already out on the field, like unless this is something that they had been warned about before the game and said, hey, you know, we are going to be forcing that rule in particular very closely today. <laughs> don't do that. You're, you're making the situation worse when you don't necessarily have to make the situation worse. So the best part of this situation was uh, Rocco Baldelli's quick awareness. So the twins realize they're going to have to lift their starting pitcher from the game. And this was in, I think, the fifth inning. They have not had a reliever throw a pitch in the bullpen. And because this isn't like an injury situation where a reliever can take as many throws as he wants to get ready, he's basically got to come in right away and throw his whatever it is, five pitches and pitch. They would have had to bring in a reliever who was not anywhere close to being ready. Because of that, Rocco Baldelli, I think, quickly realized that. And he spent a solid minute arguing with the umpires and then eventually got ejected and then took his time getting ejected and stayed out on the field to give his reliever enough time to get warm. Like that was one of the smartest in the moment moves that I think I've seen from a manager, because I don't think you've ever been in that scenario before to be like, Oh, that's the smart thing to do. But that's what he did. He delayed that as long as possible. So somebody in his bullpen could at least throw like 10 pitches before having to come into the game. Yeah, it's pretty brilliant when you get stuck in a situation like that. And the umpires in particular know that they might have screwed up somewhere in that process, whether it's charging the mound visit or not letting him know about it or whatever it was. So they also know they're probably not going to push Rocco Baldelli to get off the field any too fast. It's always fascinated me, by the way, how you know, in basketball we can essentially say, look, you got 60 seconds to leave the court or you know, the penalties are going to increase here. Like, in baseball, that guy could set up a picnic <laughs> table on the mound and stay, and I don't know that Major League Baseball has any sort of provisions in there to make him leave. So, I don't know. Uh, definitely something that uh, I had never seen before when it came to the Rocco Valley situation, and uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Okay, before uh, we end this hour, I have an important question for both Jared and Adam here. Did you guys happen to see Mike Grimala's tweet yesterday uh, about him going to 7-Eleven? I did. So Mike Grimala goes to 7-Eleven. He tweets out that his uh, price came exactly to 
7-Eleven. Uh, somebody asked to know what Mike Gramala got at 7-Eleven that came out to exactly 7-Eleven. Um, I know the answer to this. Mike Gramala told me this last night. Do either of you think you can guess what Mike Gramala got from 7-Eleven that cost exactly $7.11? Cheese pizza. Okay, that's entirely possible and I actually like it better than my answer. My answer was going to be full loaf of Wonder White Bread <laughs> and big gulp of Coke. <laughs> All right, Adam, you correctly guessed one of the three items that Mike Gramala bought. Big gulp of Coke. Bread. No, oh, big right. gulp of Coke is one of the three items Mike Gramala purchased from 7-Eleven. Do you guys want to take another guess here? Okay, um, big bite. Uh, no, I don't know what that is. What is a big bite? Hot it's dog. a hot dog. Oh, it's the hot dog. No, it is not the hot dog. Jared, do you did he buy guess? the 7-Eleven chicken wings? He did not buy. There, there is no other like hot food. Yeah. Okay. I was going to go with combos. Yeah. Okay. So good guess, but I will let you know from talking to Mike Romalo, he who only, does like combos, he only, only when he's traveling. If it's a road trip or a flight, he'll I eat actually have the same thing, by the way. I only eat combos <laughs> when I'm traveling, and that's not a joke. I, I, under the assumption they only sell them in airports, and only if you've been on the road for an hour is the only way you can see them. Didn't, didn't we used to have him rate airports based on their combos? Well, selection? he did that himself on the internet, oh. because he only likes the cheddar cheese flavor, I think, and he gets upset when he goes, and it's like the pizza flavor. This segment is running short. What else did he buy? Pringles? Right. No Pringles. Uh, he bought goldfish. Uh, which I think is just a cheese it substitute. He loves Cheez-Its. And then the final item he bought was a Brookie, a half fudge brownie and half chocolate chip cookie pushed together. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. That's two foods swirled together. I was about to say, guarantee he split them apart. The, the key, okay, here's the key on Mike Ramal and his food. Doesn't want to eat anything unless it's like uh, pastry, right? If it's like baked goods, baked dessert, he loves it and will eat all of it, unless it has fruit in it. That's the one thing he's afraid of is fruit in it. But Goldfish, Brookie, and Big Gulp Coke, exactly 7-Eleven.